Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Over the past you know, five or six months, Australians have seen a re-emergence, at least in, in media terms, of far-right extremism as an issue of concern. Now, we've had Senator Christina Keneally on this particular series previously to talk about the way in which a parliamentary committee inquiry gone up and some of the constituent concerns. But what we'll do today with um, a freelance researcher and journalist, James Cutler, is look at a bit more closely at a range of themes that have emerged over the past six months, issues such as how you cover the far right or or extremism more generally in an appropriate fashion. Um, so rather than me wobble on a bit bit longer the way I usually do, we'll get James on board straight away. James, how, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, look, you've done a fair bit of uh, study in the space. You've done some uh, papers in the in the area. But what interested you enough in the topic to start investigating it academically, intellectually? Um, well, I suppose I first started um, in a journalistic capacity back when I was a student journalist um, in 2018. Um, okay. So it was it was kind of a, a bit of a, a foreign concept to me, something that I didn't understand. Um, and at, at that time, there was a bit going on with, you know, rallies and, um, you know, just plenty going on. So um, essentially, I decided that I would embed myself with um, some of the 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 local far right, I suppose, the far right, what they call themselves activists. Um, and so that was for about, a you know, about seven, eight months I was embedded with them. So I went to um, a few different rallies, a few different um, events, um, such as the Lauren Southern event that year, um, just to sort of see what they, what everything was about and, and learn what it was all about. Um, and then as I transitioned into the academic side of things, I sort of carried that with me and um, carried some of, I guess, what I what I had picked up um, and, and applied it to sort of that academic side of things and, and trying to study, you know, how people get get to this point and, and get stuck on these paths. What were the things that you noticed were... Um, you know, interesting to you. I mean, it, it, we can, when you confront something like that and you observe something like that, there are things that stick out. Mm-hmm. What were the things that stuck out in the time you were watching um, those individuals and those groups and, and those events closely? Um, I think um, probably the main thing that's, that stood out to me when I was sort of um, observing them, um, and, and, you know, I was sort of at arm's length. They knew that I was, you know, not there to participate, that I was there as a, um, they called me the lefty journalist, um, but they sort of just let me uh, observe. But what I observed that I think often goes unspoken when it comes to, to these people is the power of community um, and how that, that, I don't want to say traps them, into these groups and into these ideologies, but it certainly it acts as 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 to pull them and to keep them there is this sense of community and this sense of um, 
I suppose, solidarity with with their like-minded friends. Um, and for a lot of those, a lot of the young men that are being drafted into it, it's it's maybe one of the first times that they experience um, a sense of community, and so that's very very powerful. Um, and that was what that was probably the main thing that I that I picked up on, um, and how sort of I suppose the leaders um, and the figureheads of these groups um, and and of the movements sought to exploit that in their younger recruits. Um, that was really probably the, the the main takeaway that I took from from my time, sort of um, you know proximal to to all of that. Before we go looking into that more contemporary developments, I'd like to expand on that further mm-hmm. uh, because that, that that to me is core uh, in understanding why people are drawn to this. You know, there's this magnetic pull. Um, mm-hmm. in, given some of the people you, you would have spoken to at the time, did you have any sense that, for example, that they didn't feel as if they belonged at home within the family? Were there, were there, did you get a sense that their private lives were kind of um, difficult <laughs> uh, to use a euphemism to the point where they needed to find an outlet for or, or a place or a group with which they can belong? Yeah, yeah, I think that there was, um, and again, this is more, um, less probably the case with, with the main figureheads and the leaders. Um, yeah. you know, so so the, the Neil Ericsons and the Blair Culturals and stuff like that were a bit of a different breed. Um, but but sort of the, the, the others sort of on, on the, the lower levels, I suppose, there was definitely... Um, an impression that they had some sort of, you know, um, something within their own lives that drew them to this. Um, and that's not not at all to excuse the fact that, you know, they're obviously subscribed to a very hateful ideology and that, that deserves to be opposed and called out. But um, as to how they get drawn to that um, and then how they uh, uh, quite a lot of the time get further and further and further and further into it, um, certainly there was uh, – you, you, you got an impression of feeling – Either uh, lost uh, or afraid, um, and then how that was either catered to by the ideology itself, mm-hmm. um, or exploited by those those sort of leaders, and and sort of you know helped along to to encourage them to to not only join but stay in and 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 recruit others. The whole idea of community building and building a core. Exactly. Um, yeah, and how you draw people, how you draw people in, and that I think is that that I think is something we don't explore particularly well uh-huh. um, in the way in which these groups have written about. And we've both read a lot of material since Australia Day, uh-huh. uh, and we know that there was a little adventure that took place in the Grampians, and ever since. The amount of coverage received by far right um, uh, groups, uh, respective of who they are, uh, has increased. Uh-huh. Um, I write, you write, and we've both got some concerns about the way in which these things are tackled. What is it about media coverage of this phenomenon that? 
causes you the most grief? Um, I think uh, I probably there's there's probably two different fronts to discuss on that. I mean, there's probably the, the more obvious front where um, maybe you might have some media which their talking points um, and their sort of fear mongering actually, I suppose, walks a little bit hand in hand with some of these ideologies. Okay, um, and that's obviously problematic in, in itself. Um, but then aside from that, I think that you have the the coverage which can, I guess, play into the hands of these groups um, and play into the hands of the, the individual as to not only further give them a platform but also give them a sense of an outsized presence um, and making them appear, um, you know, more powerful or, you know, in some cases more scary um, than they otherwise need to be or are. Um, and I think that's probably on those two fronts, that's that's where I draw an issue. Okay, let's take uh, let's take the first one and expand upon it a little bit because I think I know where you're heading. Um, in any discussion about immigration, for example, uh-huh. um, you will have uh, a discussion about you know, what people uh, ought to be required to do when they come to Australia. In some cases, it'll be simple. It'll be a, a basic demand on the part of some people that they need to understand yeah, and, and have, have a working uh, knowledge of you know, English for their day-to-day process. Uh-huh. From a policy standpoint, that's sound but put that into certain, the hands of certain media operatives in the case of, you know, how many, what, what sort of mix do we take from refugees and all that type of stuff, um, refugees from, say, Syria or elsewhere, you start to get a different discussion, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely a sense of fear-mongering um, among parts of the media um, as to, I suppose anything that doesn't subscribe to their own personal idea of what the world around them should look like, um, and it's you know in some cases it's the it's the racializing of, of things that don't need that that aspect. Um, sometimes it's 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 even so I suppose an ideological influence in itself, um, and, and I think that that's that's problematic in itself, um, but then when you do, I suppose, discuss sort of this far-right extremism stuff, how that then feeds that is also another it, issue. It becomes a part of a mosaic, doesn't it? You know, it, it, it might be one article that appears in a newspaper or a television segment or whatever have you, uh-huh. a bit like the reference to African gangs that, that kept happening at one point. Um, not sure why. The entire continent was problematic. If in fact you you understood that there were young young people who'd found their way together and were causing a bit of trouble, um, I'm not sure that's the fault of Africa. But if you um, if you look at that, and then you look at the way in which um, certain far right players weaponise that uh, at rallies and uh, in parliaments and whatever else, 
Uh-huh. You start to see that linkage, don't you, between the coverage, which is sensationalised, uh-huh. and a sort of perverted notion of how you develop policy, right? Well, you, you bring up that example of the African gangs, and that's a, that's a particularly relevant one, I guess, to this conversation. Um, and, and this is something that th- that sort of moral panic that surrounded that um, was something that I studied um, at length for, for my, my thesis during my master's degree. Um, but with regards to that African gangs panic, we saw sort of that, that process of one feeding into the other in the sense that there was the media and the politics which stoked this sort of moral panic against African gangs. And then the next thing you knew, um, in St Kilda, you had the, the in January of 2019, you had that, uh, that rally of you, you essentially had um, a bunch of far-right yahoos and some Nazis um, storming St Kilda to protest what ostensibly to protest the the African gangs that as as we know um, in reality didn't exist um, so that process of, of one feeding into the other was was very clear in that in that example yeah I um, I watched that unfold through the media and I think that that's an interesting example to bring up because it is uh, it is something that journalists need to be conscious of. Yeah, you know, the label you use, the way that label is then weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate the word weaponized, but I'm using it simply because it's convenient, right? It's like having mm-hmm. McDonald's. I know Mac I know Macca's isn't good for me, but I might grab it on the way past just because it fills a hole, right? Yep. That's what the word weaponized is for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the it's the linguistic equivalent of fast food. And then we um, become weaponised, it becomes a part of policy debate, and it then enters into public discourse uh, with politicians, as we saw with uh, Fraser Renning at the time. Uh, what That's the sensationalist element. If uh-huh. we flip to the second point you raised, which fascinates me at the current time, it's how do you cover this area responsibly uh-huh. without um, without inflaming the situation further because you cannot ignore the, the, the basic proposition that we have here is the world is ugly uh-huh. there are, and then we need to reflect the world in all of its um you know, beauty and ugliness and whatever have you. We can't just, you know, the real world isn't Twitter. You can't just block things you dislike. Mm-hmm. What do you think is a reasonable way of covering um, this phenomenon um, without, you know, um, giving people disproportionate emphasis, mm-hmm. but also going into a space where you seek to deny these things exist. Um, well, I mean, I, I mean, I certainly don't subscribe to the belief that, and there are some out there who believe that you shouldn't discuss this topic at all. You shouldn't discuss these individuals at all. Um, and I certainly don't subscribe to that. I think that's got, 
comes with dangers in itself. As to how to cover it um, responsibly, I mean, I guess um, you know the reality is that it's 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 not a perfect science, um, and it's a learning process for us all. Um, but I think it's not unreasonable to suggest that we don't need to um, give these individuals even bigger platforms, I guess, to to speak uncritically um, than they already have. Um, and to you know, if if you've got a you know an article or or a you know a, a TV piece or whatever the case might be, where um, I guess you give more time or more space to to these individuals belonging to these ideologies and what they're saying, than to you know credible experts who can offer insight and sort of articulate what's actually happening. If that balance is off, um, I think that's problematic um, for for you know, what I think should be obvious reasons. Um, and so as as to how to start covering it better, I suppose that's one place to start is to sort of really, I suppose, use your assets, use the experts that are there. Um, so consult with them on how a piece should look maybe, but also consult with them on on what whatever you're you're talking about as to whatever these 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 people are doing or whatever they're saying. Um Nine times out of ten, whatever it is, is something that needs to be interpreted. Um, and and you have those experts there, and unfortunately, they're they're being underused in um, in Australia's media. And I think that's a big part of the issue that we're we're facing currently. Well, there are a range of academic experts, um, as you would know from your studies, and as I know from mine, mm-hmm. um, that. Uh, are available to talk. Um, I, I did a podcast in this series with Greg Barton. Poor old Greg's probably been given the run of the kitchen over the past six months, um, but it's okay. He, you know, it, it elevates the prominence of Deakin University in media coverage. There's a KPI there. But the other thing is um, you talk about is responsibility in, in achieving balance. Um which takes me back to Four Corners and Steve Bannon. Uh-huh. Um, if we can start with a full 45 minutes of Steve Bannon as an example, what are the dangers that you see in, in, in spending 45 minutes of your time having a, an extended piece with a Steve Bannon or, or any individual, for example, of that ilk? Well, I suppose I'll take that example of the Steve Bannon interview. Uh, and I think that certainly my own problem, but I think a lot of the problem with with that interview was that it really sort of didn't take the opportunity to, I suppose, assess and to articulate what was really there. Um, so it sort of it came out more as 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 though a, you know a puff piece with with Bannon as opposed to, I suppose, scrutinising his role in various um, negative outcomes, I suppose, but also really truly getting to to the bottom of of how he had contributed to sort of, I suppose, the the the, the Trump presidency and the rise of sort of populist, um, mm-hmm. I, I say populist politics, but obviously we know that that's, you know, in practice it wasn't actually populism, but ostensibly it was, it was, it was um, communicated as being populist. But that interview in where that failed was in not really consulting with 
any of that, but him more being a puff piece as to, oh, here's Steve Bannon. Who's Steve Bannon? Tell us about you, Steve Bannon. Um, as opposed to sort of really, you know, as I said, consulting with what was there. Would it be? Would you look at an, a forty-five minute program differently if the time they spent with Bannon on air mm-hmm. was about ten minutes, and you had different experts looking at the the kind of white nationalist type stuff that was being spoken about, um, and all that kind of thing? I think that would have been. I think that would have been. Um, a much better episode, first of all, but I think that would have been more beneficial to to all of us, um, you know, especially to sort of, I suppose, people who aren't sort of studying this sort of stuff closely, like, you know, you and I are, um, as to help them understand what was really going on, um, and especially when you talk about, you know, the Trump presidency and, and, and all of that. Um, I think broadly speaking in the media, so much of how that came to be um, and how it progressed has has still really been uh, unspoken about. Um, and when you've got someone like Steve Bannon, who was integral to 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 a lot of that, um, sitting down with you um, to not take that opportunity to consult it and to you know pull it apart and study it a little bit closer and and really communicate to your audience, okay, this is what actually happened. To not take that opportunity, I think was was. Not only a misstep, but I think it was a great failure. Really, it's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting example because that leads us to sort of a current affair at the start of March, mm-hmm. uh, where we saw, and in fairness, there had been a lot of coverage in the Guardian and elsewhere of the phenomenon of the Grampians walk and everything else. But when we got to the 1st of March in the current affair, you know, two nights of coverage along with, you know, the special edition stuff happening all over um, the internet uh, and on various websites, um, what did you observe? What are the key, what were the key things you observed in that, over that 48-hour period in the coverage of the, the National Socialist Network? Um, well, I think for me, the frustration was, um, you know, for many months now. So I've been, I've been, you know, following National Socialist Network closely since its inception, which was probably towards the end of 2019, um, was, was when it really originally popped up. Um, and I suppose, you know, my having been studying this closely, I knew that, that their main media tactic was to try and bait the media into covering them um, and giving them outsized coverage, and that was a deliberate um, and explicitly outlined tactic of theirs that you really didn't have to look very far to find. Um, and I, you know, I'd been trying to 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 raise this as as being an issue and something to avoid for for many many months. And I suppose what I saw. Um, was another example of of Australia's media just either ignoring it or not knowing that um, or not caring about it um, and and playing into the hands of of the group and their tactics with regards to media and and giving them the the coverage that they really wanted in the end. Let me let me offer a minor point that's a bit of a counterpoint to 
it's not a criticism of your analysis, but just an additional thing to transpose on top of it. Mm-hmm. And that is news values, particularly for current affairs and, and I guess, tabloid-type journalism. It's um, the, That beast looks for the most contentious and the most controversial mm-hmm. element uh, that will evoke emotion, right? Um, now, we've got a paired journalistic, a sort of a tabloid, newsy journalistic instincts today more than at any other time, I guess, with if I'm if I'm operating at that sensa- level of sensationalism um, and I'm picking up keywords and you know, throwing sort of things around in terms of extremism, um, uh, I might be getting my audience, but is my is the tendency of the journalistic beast in the tabloid world you know, needing to be modified or yeah, pulled back a bit, given what we knew before, but what we know concretely now, given the act, given the activist manual that was released, that, uh-huh. the, that the tactic is media baiting. Uh-huh. Well, I mean that the info, but the information with regards to to the media baiting and that being as their their main tactic was available um, many many months before the the activist manual. Um, that you're speaking about was leaked, um, and, and and as far as I'm aware, even long before um, the National Socialist Network even wrote that manual, um, this information was was out there to be found as to how they wanted to to bait the media as their media strategy, um, and spe- specifically as a strategy to grow their organisation. Um, but I think. Just to just to I suppose walk back a little bit. I think you speak to what I think is is I suppose the great conflict of our time um, at the moment. In that, you know, I, I think we're living in an age of of fear ultimately. Um, and on one hand, you have you know politics and the media who um, deliberately try and I suppose stoke that fear, um, monetize that fear and, um, you know, find personal gain and profit from that fear. Um, but one thing that we're not, we're not understanding is that I think the flip side to that, that element is that you then see that fear manifest in, um, like these ideologies that we're discussing now. Um, and I think that's something that often goes unspoken is, is the relationship there and the role of fear specifically and this is something that i've covered quite extensively myself so my master's thesis was written on uh on moral panic um and so i suppose the role that that media and politics played in um fear and then the i suppose the consequences of that fear and how that unfolded in in a few examples such as the satanic panic which was one that i covered um but i mean i i I was sort of going just down a rabbit hole um, myself again last night, and I, I flagged a, a an article um, way back in 2015, and it was um, pr- then Prime Minister Tony Abbott talking about uh, talking about ISIS, about um, Daesh. Yeah, and he basically said 
and I'm going to quote him here. As far as the Daesh death cult is concerned, they're coming after us. We may not feel like we are at war with them, but they are certainly at war with us. And this was in 2015. In the years immediately after and since, we saw a a real rapid growth um, in this far-right stuff, in Islamophobia, in xenophobia. And a lot of people are hesitant, I suppose, to sort of draw the connection and see the connection there. But when you pull it back, so again, again during my studies, I wrote about, um, for example, um, Alexandra Bissonnette, who was a young man in Canada who um, went into a series of mosques and um, killed, I think he killed nine people. Um, and when he was spoken to and interrogated afterwards, he was basically suggesting that his actions he felt were necessary because he was protecting his what he he claimed that he was protecting his family and he was protecting his culture from what he saw as a threat now we know that that's that's not the case it wasn't a threat that this was a you know an act of violence against innocent people who had um you know, who posed no threat to him whatsoever but what I'm, why I bring this up is because I think it's largely an unspoken element of all of this is the role of fear and the, and how it goes from point A, which is politics and the media deliberately trying to to um, incite that fear and to use that fear, and then point B where that fear then becomes, you know, these these ideologies and these beliefs where people feel that fear and are compelled to act in ways which are either hateful or they're irrational or whatever the case might be. And that connection there is something that we're often not talking about. What you're, what you're highlighting, I think we can refine this just uh, a tad, mm-hmm. is you're highlighting the, um, yeah, the use of fear as a selling point. Now, whether it's the use of fear as a selling point in journalistic coverage uh-huh. or whether it's use of fear as a selling point in for those that promote a particular ideology or a group or whatever uh-huh. it happens to be, um, I think it's a moot point. It, it comes back to the use of fear uh, as the tool. You're right. Yeah, you'd be right to say that one can feed the other in terms of media coverage feeds the other thing, and it's a vicious circle because people then report things that arise from uh, actions that they may have influenced uh, at a point in time without realizing that um, some of what they might might have been a part of uh-huh. actually influenced that actually had an impact on that. Yep. Um, how do we raise that consciousness, though, James? You're, you're a younger man than me, uh, and your eyes, you see, see things through a slightly different lens um, or, a, or a younger lens, perhaps slightly clearer. Uh-huh. Um, how do we elevate that consciousness? How do we increase awareness? Because we've, we've, we've looked at the problem. Um, how do we increase awareness of 
the way these people operate, um, the pernicious nature of these ideologies, and also how to properly, I guess, how to frame these issues in a way that reports truthfully, uh-huh. but not um, sensationally. Um, well, I suppose I'll start with with regards to the report, the reporting side of things. Um, I think, unfortunately, the reality is that it's it's. I think that we we need to collectively be consistent in demanding better, um, but I don't expect that it's going to change very fast because this is the nature of the beast. Yeah. And the nature of the beast is that, as you've as you've rightly said, that they they aim to sensationalize, and that sensationalization, um, you know, is 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 built around increasing eyeballs it's increasing readership it's increasing viewership um and being that this is the nature of the beast i don't expect it to change um even as it continues to have real world consequences um i don't think it's going to change fast mm-hmm. on the i suppose the individual level and the and the and the community level one of the biggest things that i preach um is is digital literacy um and so what I mean by that is essentially, you know, teaching people, um, you know, ideally from a young age, but but all people, um, I suppose, the language um, that they're going to come across and what it really means um, and how to properly navigate, you know, these various internet communities or um, even in some cases, you know, media and really interpret for themselves what they're actually reading. Um, and I think, you know, for example, if you've got if you've got a young man that goes onto a website like 4chan, um, you know, they might innocently think that that it's all a joke, and then that continues on until it isn't a joke. Um, and a big part of that is because they're not taught the literacy of how to understand what they're really seeing um, and what to look out for. And I think that if we were to begin to try and teach people generally but especially from from young ages that that digital literacy and how to interpret and to understand what they're actually seeing and what to look out for that we would begin to see some improvements where it's creating a a i suppose a self-resilience for for individuals yeah Um, and so that's why i you know my number one thing when people ask me you know what can we do is digital digital literacy is is increasing that the there's something else that might be useful for people to do, and I'll run this past you. Mm-hmm. Um, what role do you think uh, having a a better focus or a more targeted focus on uh, the teaching of, sort of comparative values, comparative religion, comparative philosophy would have uh, in preparing people for what they might confront? Um, in their in their lives out online, bearing in mind that, that a lot of the people that are joining these movements tend to be in their mid to late teens, uh-huh. and their leaders are in their twenties. Well, I think I think a big one of the big issues with this is that as we increasingly live in a multicultural society, and um, on many levels, you know, Australia. Um, you know, suggests that it values living as a multicultural society. 
but when we're talking about sort of an education process, so through through young ages, um, I don't think that that kids and teens are being taught about multiple cultures in such a way that's proportionate to how they're expected to live in a multicultural society. And so what I mean by that is, I guess, it's very much still, um, I suppose, one note in focusing on that, I suppose, the, the, the Australian culture, the, the Catholic Christian sort of influence um, it is still very much outsized in terms of the education process as opposed to learning about the various different cultures, the various different religions, um, not in such a way as to be, you know, obviously indoctrinating anyone. That's not what we're talking about. But but simply, you know, if we're hoping that that young people are going to understand how to live in a multicultural society, we need to teach them from a young age about multiple cultures so that they know what they're seeing and they know what they're living in. And also it inoculates them from uh, the possibility of being swept up in in movements like that because they, once you introduce people to a broader, a broader range of philosophies, they then have broader, a wider range of questions they can ask about what they see, about what their friends are getting involved in, mm-hmm. about what the bloke they, they happen to bump into uh, at the bank in the back of the school shed um, is babbling on about. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the, uh, I guess, uh, we can wrap it up. I'm, I'm, aware, but we're, uh, uh, I'm aware of time, but the one thing that we didn't touch on, and I think it's useful, is what is the role of the sort of the social media platforms and the messaging platforms in your view in in grappling with the far right or rather mm-hmm. ex- oh, any extremist type activity but far right particularly given that's the focus at the moment um i suppose it's a complicated one i mean I, I, I think I think it's it's similar to to how I spoke about with regards to the media and how that um, sensationalizes things and, it, and it's the nature of the beast. Um, I think that's probably that's probably similar to 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 social media. But again, I bring it back to sort of that digital literacy and and encouraging people on an individual level to to be better informed and to be more resilient. Um, and more aware of what they're going to come across and how to, I suppose, better protect themselves. Um, but I, I, I mean, I think there's, there's the issues with regards to social media and the growth of, you know, conspiracy theories and, and um, extremist ideologies is, is, is actually worsening. Um, I think we particularly saw that through COVID um, and how the spread of conspiracy theories um, was really quite rapid and pronounced. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, not to not to you know not to bring it back too much, but I think that again that is almost a byproduct of um, that sensationalism in in the media and in the politics itself, and how that then feeds. Um, so I think probably the most honest answer that I could give is that I don't think it's a problem of social media more than it is a problem of culture at the moment. Okay, um, and I think that. 
we need to address that and start addressing um, the issues with the culture if we're going to hope to try and solve some of the issues we're seeing pop up on social media or in the traditional media or in politics or whatever the case might be. And I guess it comes back to the idea that technology is agnostic. It's a tool. And, uh-huh. um, and, and the community really needs to understand what what kinds of people are you know, putting their hands around the social media shovel and digging. Um, uh-huh. If I can use an analogy that probably didn't sound so crash hot. But, uh-huh. <laughs> but if you were, uh, yeah, so the, that's where, uh, that's probably a nice spot to leave it. James, you've written some uh, papers um, in the past. Uh, where can people find some of your work? Um, I suppose probably the easiest way is to find me on Twitter. So I'm on Twitter at, at T underscore C-U-T-L-E-T. Um, and I've got the link to some of my previous papers in, in my bio there. Uh, I've had a look at uh, some of that material. It's worthwhile having a look at. James, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. It's been a pleasure having a chat. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Let me just...